I'm Annie Fadley. I'm a producer here. Welcome to the show. So the coolest thing about making Pitchfork Economics is the people that we get to talk to. And we've been really overjoyed to watch some of our past guests be appointed to positions in the Biden-Harris administration. So without further ado, here's what the new administration sounds like through the ears of Pitchfork Economics. Starting with the oldest conversation on this list, we spoke to Jared Bernstein in March 2019. And at the time, he was a senior fellow at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. But now he's an incoming member of Biden's Council of Economic Advisors. Here's his thoughts on the role of power and monopolies. It is commonly misunderstood. The assumptions in economics are benign or they're they're mathematical or they sort of come out of a model that may or may not be right. In fact, they come out of a model that isn't right, A. But B, these are very much politically motivated assumptions that serve one class over another, and it's that class that's been winning for a long time. If you go back 30 or 40 years, there may have been some monopsonistic parts of the labor market, but I, I don't really see them in the data. Now we have you know, very scholarly and careful papers that look at the concentration by industry and they correlate it with outcomes. Chris Liu was the deputy secretary of labor under Obama, and Biden tapped him to lead his transition review team for the Department of Labor. Here's what he had to say about the importance of restoring the overtime threshold. You could work 50, 60, 70 hours, $23,000 a year, which is a low wage in this country. It's important to understand that there was a point at which that 23000 essentially covered about 60% of employees in this country. Because it has not been updated, it only covers about 8%. If you're the typical employer, you now have a couple of options if you, we raise the threshold. You can either pay that employee more money, time and a half, or you can decide, I'm still going to pay you $23,000. i am now going to take those extra hours that you are working, and I'm going to hire somebody else. So you've now either raised wages for one employee or you've given job opportunities to people who aren't working. That has a pretty powerful effect in lifting up everyone's wages at one time. And just as importantly, it gives time back to workers. The worker who was working 50, 67 hours a week, if that person is now back to 40 hours, that's extra time that he or she has with the family, uh, with hobbies, with uh, community service activities, and that's good for our society. Next, we talked to Felicia Wong about the endless barriers to getting out of poverty. She's the president and CEO of the Roosevelt Institute, and she's going to continue in that role while serving on Biden's transition team advisory board. For many decades, at least since the 1980s, um, you know, we have thought about uh people in poverty um, as needing certain kinds of programs, right? Food stamp programs, other kinds of TANF programs. And look, these kinds of programs in the poverty alleviation frame generally is really important. But in a way, these are kind of like Band-Aids. Like these are not the right policies because they are not really cures. And one of the other problems is that poverty isn't like a scratch or a bruise. We're talking about a really cancerous tumor, uh, and Band-Aids are really not the solution to the problem. So I think it's important to look at much deeper ways in which the structure of our economy is actually driving poverty. Here's Michigan State Professor of Economics Lisa D. Cook, who is serving on the Federal Reserve Transition Review Team, on the cost of excluding women and people of color from economic leadership. I can tell you from 
being a person who goes into government ever so often to help clean up financial crises, uh, both here and uh, abroad, I can tell you that the, the lack of you know, women and diversity in these conversations leads to the next crisis. You're cleaning up one crisis and you're uh, starting another if you're not including people who are integrally intertwined with the economy, who are making most of the economic decisions in the household. And the household uh, you know, consumption accounts for about 65% of GDP. Women are making most of those decisions. Certainly, the math suggests that they should be uh, consulted more and, and African-Americans and other uh, underrepresented minorities should be consulted more. So it's the questions people are asking in their lived experience that makes a big difference with respect to the questions that are posed with respect to research and with respect to policy. Marissa Baradaran is a professor of law at UC Irvine. She specializes in banking law, and we talked to her about the hidden costs of banking while poor. She's actually serving on two of Biden's agency review teams, both the Department of Treasury and the Federal Reserve. It's not just the cost that these people pay, but it's the time and the psychological stress of not being banked and having to go with cash to the water office to pay your water bill, and then with cash to pay your electricity bill and your a cell phone bill, and all of the other things that we all put on auto pay. When you're unbanked, you end up having to do a lot of this stuff with cash and then through money orders, right? So you can't send cash in the mail, so you have to go to get a money order. Where do you get a money order? You go and you have to pay for it. How do you get your paycheck put into cash? You have to go to a check casher, right? And they take off, you know, 10%, and then you put it back into a money order, and that's another 10%, right? So these are fees that are paid for exclusively by the unbanked and the poor. And these are things that we get for free. When we spoke to Ron Klain in April of last year, he was busy lawyering and serving as an advisor to Biden's campaign. He's no stranger to the White House. He was Biden's chief of staff in the Obama administration, and he later served as Obama's White House Ebola response coordinator. And now he's going to run the whole show as Biden's chief of staff. Here's his perspective on how leadership failures are responsible for the extent of the destruction that we've seen from COVID. The threat of a pandemic like this was not unexpected. Indeed, it was quite widely predicted, predicted for many, many years and predicted quite specifically in uh, the late part of the last decade. People now have seen on the Internet, quite famously, a speech that President Obama gave in December uh, of, uh, of 2014 at the National Institutes of Health, where he said, hey, sometime in the future, maybe five years from now, we will see a flu-like pandemic sweep the world. Will we be ready for it? He gave that speech in December of 2014. December of 2019 was five years later. So there's nothing about this that wasn't really foreseeable. That's why at the end of the Obama administration, he created a pandemic preparedness office to get us ready for this inevitability. It's why he invested in global health security, building more than 40 CDC-led pandemic listening stations, observation stations around the world, including one in China. It's why he negotiated an agreement with the Chinese government to get a U.S. official inside the Chinese Disease Control Agency. It's why he invested in something called the PREDICT program to find diseases, emerging disease threats around the world. The point is that he launched an aggressive strategy to try to look out for and watch this disease when it came. 
President Trump rolled all that back. He disbanded the disease, the pandemic office in the White House. He slashed the PREDICT program. He left our position in the Chinese Disease Control Agency empty at the time this broke out. So we should have been getting ready. We were ungetting ready. Economist Heather Boucher is the co-founder, president, and CEO of the Washington Center for Equitable Growth. And she's a member of Biden's Council of Economic Advisors with Jared Bernstein. She's actually been on the show twice, but here's what she had to say about creating resiliency in our economy when we talked to her in May of last year. The decisions that we as a country have made on how to run our economy, on who should be making decisions about what's good for our people and our society, uh, has not created the kind of resiliency that we need. And so you know, one of the things that we've been thinking a lot about over the past few months is how too often we've pushed on to private actors and the markets the work that only government can do. In July last year, we talked to economist Joelle Gamble about how basic Econ 101 principles uphold racist systems. At the time, she was working on reimagining capitalism at the Omidyar Network, and she's currently serving on the Biden-Harris Transition's domestic economy policy team as a special assistant to the president for economic policy. Neoliberalism kind of hides the ball, right? It assumes that free markets rule all, when in reality, you know, our economy is shaped by institutions, norms, and policies. And we have to be upfront about that, especially if we don't want economic policies to perpetuate racist systems, because racism is also not just about individual behaviors. It's about institutions, norms, and policies that lead to the marginalization of specific racialized groups, especially Black people in the United States. And, you know, that gets to this idea that a rising tide can lift all boats, that we can just expand opportunity and it'll reach everyone, which is just not true. I believe that democracy is one of the biggest enemies of neoliberalism. When more folks have access to the ballot box, when there's less influence of money in politics, you know, when we have you know, public agendas that are accountable, the people they are meant to serve, you know, we're going to get better outcomes and neoliberalism will not be maintained because neoliberalism is essentially designed to uphold the interests of capital. And that brings us to present day. We just spoke to Bharat Ramamurti about the case for a true new deal. And right after we talked to him, like literally maybe 12 hours, he was named the deputy director of the National Economic Council. The combination of changes that we've seen, you know, which you can sort of shorthand as the Reagan revolution, has in many ways colored the way that both Republicans and Democrats think about the economy for the last 30 or 40 years. And what we need to do, I think, is, is move beyond that perspective to understanding that the opposite of a less active role for government isn't more freedom for people. The alternative for a less active role for government is more uh, power for corporations. Right? Instead of the government setting the rules, the corporations are setting the rules and dictating how the game is played. And, and frankly, for all the flaws in our democratic system, I'd much rather have the people at least be the ones trying to set the rules rather than big corporations being the ones trying to set the rules. We want to extend our congratulations to all of these brilliant people who were so kind to share their time with us. We're so excited to see what they accomplish in the coming years. And if you want to hear more from them, we'll link all of these episodes in the show notes. Thanks for listening. 
Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.